This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Sam, tell me how you pronounce the uh, the little candies that are made by the people who make the peanut butter cups, but they also come like in a candy shell, chocolate and peanut butter. How do you pronounce The things E.T. ate? Yeah, 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 the things E.T. ate. Yeah, so as everybody knows, those are affectionately known, and I'm only going to say this once, <laughs> Reese's Pieces. <laughs> they are Reese's Pieces. I said it twice. There you go. I okay. said it twice because you know what? Reese's Pieces is fun to <laughs> Three say. Three times! Yep. It is fun to say candy is fun. That's how we're leading off this podcast. Ever everybody. since we recorded. Candy is fun. The last uh, two episodes of the show before the show, the Minor League Baseball podcast, uh, Sam and I, we have hung out. We've watched football together. We've shared uh, nachos. And uh, were there any nachos, actually? I don't think there were nachos. There was a lot of food, like, like fried food. I yeah, don't it was think... a lot of, like, bread stuffs. There was, like, Mozz- pretzel, mozzarella sticks, and mozzarella sticks uh, tater tots. Um, but, yeah, we've done that. And uh, we have also learned – that we stand on two opposite sides of the chasm of how to pronounce Reese's Pieces, as Sam says. Yeah. So we learned that yesterday about each other. It's just been a whole – it's been like two weeks of bonding over the holidays. So welcome in, everybody. Hi. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. (laughs) That's what we got – what separates us out of the way. We got it out of the way because 2016, it's all about unity. It's episode number 40 of the show before the show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast. Last couple of weeks, we went through uh, the American League, the National League, some wish lists, some resolutions heading into 2016, and we are kicking the new year off with a bang today. Sam, tell us what we got coming up on the show. Yeah, so this week, uh, we're kind of going red-centric. We're going to talk later to player – uh, development director Jeff Graupe. Um, we're going to break down a little bit of the uh, Chapman deal, hopefully talk to somebody involved in that deal um, who you he- hear from a little later today. And uh, yeah, we'll talk, we'll, we're going to start off with the, with the Hall of Fame because that's what everybody's talking about in baseball this week. And we're not going to be a baseball podcast that completely forgets about the, the two newest inductees in uh, Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza. Not only are we going to talk about it, but we're going to talk with a guy who was there at the press conference today, and he is one Sam Dykstra. Um, tell us about it. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. goes in with the highest percentage of a vote getter in Major League history. Uh, three guys left them uh, left him off of their bows for some reason we don't know who that was mike piazza goes in as well he has said that he will go in as a new york met which i think most people probably assume that he would um but to be at the press conference today um to think back on i mean you and i are now getting to the point and i'm a little bit older than you but we're getting to the point now where like our childhood heroes are the guys who are going into the hall of fame which is cool um what was it like being there for this today yeah, it was really neat, and uh, I was happy I was able to get in a question in the press conference, you know, just asking them about their minor league careers, because the thing about these two, I mean, you don't root for, like, they're, they're, if I had a ballot, I would have had 10 people on it, and I hope all 10 will get in, um, but these two, as a class, is really interesting, at least from our perspective, Griffey being the first ever first overall pick, first overall draft pick to enter the Hall of Fame, which is crazy when you think about it. Um, you know, the shows draft. you how difficult the major league baseball draft is exactly. And the draft goes back to the sixties and there's however many, you know, first round picks that have, have or first overall picks that have gone in. Griffey's the first. Um, and then you have Mike Piazza who was drafted in the 62nd round in 1988 in a round that doesn't even exist anymore. Um, he was taken 1,390th. So you, it's really just the polar opposites. Piazza now is the lowest ever draft pick to enter the Hall of Fame. That's like but, the most fittingly baseball thing ever, right? Oh yeah, it's just the storyline is just built in so well from you know from a minor league baseball slash draft writer's perspective that just works so well. Um, so it was interesting to hear them talk about their minor league careers today, and um, you know they both really talked about how once you hit the minors, everybody's just kind of the same. You know, you were taken first overall, you were taken the 62nd round, but you're still on that same bus. You're still, you know, taking back then what were they were calling cold showers. Uh, Piazza had a really interesting story about how he was talking to Tommy Lasorda, who's his godfather, and saying, like, 
hey man, the, the showers here are really cold. And Tommy's like, good. I want them to be cold. I want them to push you. I want you to be pushed by the idea of a warm shower in Major League Baseball, <laughs> which like if you need a motivating factor, I guess a warm shower is a good one. But uh, I thought that was a really interesting detail. Um, but just that that idea of, you know, both guys started out in the Northwest League, you know, applied their trade in the California League. Griffey didn't take very long to get to the majors, was there at 19, um, was, you know, there on opening day and I think his third year in uh, professional baseball did not take very long at all. Only a handful of games at double a Piazza had to take his time, you know, develop as such a low round pick cab to had to keep proving himself over and over and over again. And uh, obviously turned into ar- arguably the best offensive catcher the game has ever seen. What are, when you look back on Ken Griffey Jr. And, and Mike Piazza, I mean, those are two guys who left an impact for, uh, you know, what you forget is Griffey, we always think about him as the kid. We always think about him in Seattle. He's playing with his dad. He was a, the flashy kid. He turned his hat around backwards. He had the shoes. He had everything. He was the coolest guy of the generation. Piazza was kind of the, the opposite. I mean, like you said, in a guy who had to make it through uh, being a person. I mean, he was drafted as a favor. Tommy Lasorda knew his father, I think, is the story and basically told the Dodgers just take a flyer on this kid we're not really going to expect anything out of him but when you think about those two guys in their careers because that was part of that generation that molded guys like us into baseball fans what do you remember about those two yeah the thing that stands out to me about Griffey is I think the first ever game I went to uh, at Fenway Park was a Red Sox Mariners game and I just remember being so excited to to go you know the Red Sox are a local team so you're excited to see them but Griffey was the show. I mean, he was the guy you went there to see. Um, that was around the time that the All-Star game was coming to Fenway. You know, he was in the home run derby there. That was the height of the era of, you know, McGuire and Sosa just hitting bombs left and right. But Griffey was the guy who did everything. I mean, he was the guy who jumped over the wall and made the really acrobatic catch. He was the guy who flew around the bases and slid into home at Yankee Stadium to, you know, win a playoff series um, or, you know, against the Yankees. I'm sorry. Uh, so he was just a guy who he was the Michael Jordan of baseball. At yes, the time. Absolutely. he did everything. He like you said, he he wore the shoes. He everything Griffey did is what you wanted to do as a baseball player. Um, and just that sweet swing. You know, I'm not a left handed guy, but I, I, you know, did the, the dwaddle with the bat, too, just because it, he made that look so cool with the motion at the top there. Um, you know, he made you want to play center field in a way that I don't think people hadn't since the days of Mays and Snyder and DiMaggio. Uh, you know, that, that's what always sticks with me with Griffey was just the swagger and how much he was a player built for the 90s and embraced that kind of, you know, just being the face of an entire sport. Um, with Piazza, you know, uh, guys in L.A., New York probably have better connections to him than I do. Um, I, I always loved his swing too. just going over highlights the past couple of days of his inside out swing to, to right center, just the amount of power he could show just driving the ball the other way um, as, as a right handed hitter myself when I was growing up in the 90s. That's what I wanted to emulate. I did not have the power nearly that he did. Um, but being a guy who could hit the ball a ton and still play catcher when you're told catchers aren't necessarily offensive guys. Um, was really cool to see firsthand. What about for you, Tyler? You know, I think you said it uh, just about as perfectly about Griffey as as you could put it. He was the guy who made baseball cool again. And I think especially what baseball needed coming out of the strike and coming out of an era um, where, I mean, people forget, after the strike in 94, baseball was in some pretty big trouble. And Griffey was the kid who made it cool to be a baseball fan. He That's what I remember most about him was I had friends. I mean, I grew up in a, a city with a National League team with no connection to the Mariners at all. I had friends who were Mariners fans just because they wanted to like Griffey. Um, and he made it the, the next generation of baseball. He made it something neat for them to be a part of. And like you said, he was the Michael Jordan of baseball for a time. He had the shoes. He had the swagger. He had the, the perfect swing. I mean, what it was like to watch Jordan dunk, that was what it was like to watch Griffey swing. And that's what was so amazing about him through our entire lives. I mean, even in the later stages of his career, uh, when the injuries bogged him down or when he went, you kind of forget Ken Griffey Jr. was a White Sox outfielder at one time. You still 
don't remember you don't remember Jordan with the Wizards. You remember Jordan hitting the shot on Craig Elo. You don't remember Ken Griffey Jr. falling asleep in the dugout with the Mariners in 2010 or being a White Sox outfielder or Reds outfielder in the late stages of his career. You remember him turning his hat around backwards for the home run derby. You remember him scoring the run uh, to beat the Yankees in the ALDS in 1995. I mean, that saved baseball in Seattle. Ken Griffey Jr. was the definition of cool. Um, and Mike Piazza... I think was kind of from the opposite end of the spectrum in that he made you feel like you could do it too. If Piazza could be drafted 1,400 picks in and a round of the draft that no longer exists and he could make it and he could be a Hall of Famer, then it felt like anything was possible for any of us. The one memory that I have of Mike Piazza, he had a home run uh, against the Rockies, I think in, I want to say in 1997, um, that went onto the center field concourse at Coors Field on the fly. It's still the longest home run in Coors Field history. It was pre-humidor and all that, so it was back when it was just bonkers ball uh, at Coors Field. But I've never seen a baseball hit that way by anyone. And there was a, a good comment on Deadspin about it today. Uh, Tom Lay, who's actually a, a Denver kid, also says that he was at that game. He wrote, the best part about that video, and the video is up there, you can find it on MLB.com as well, is that after Mike Piazza hits that ball, he winces like he feels bad about what he just did to the baseball. <laughs> That's what was so cool about Mike Piazza. He, he ended up being so good that it was like it was out of his control. Yeah, the, the, you know, hit him the same way, um, you know, ended his career with the A's, but it's really those things New York, in New York and L.A. Um, one thing I always remember, too, is just the way he was traded to the Mets. There was that little spigot in there with the with the Marlins. Um, yeah. You, know, you, you woke up one morning to find out Mike Piazza, you know, greatest catcher at the time, traded to the Marlins. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then Five a couple days later. Five glorious games with the Marlins. Right, yeah. A couple days later, he's flipped to the Mets again. And it's just like, where did that come from? But then, you know, obviously now he's going in as a Met. So he, he seemed today at the press conference um, very grateful, you know, to the city of New York, to to the Mets uh, fan base, to everybody involved in that organization. Very thankful for where he ended up landing and uh, what followed after that. Very, very cool. Also, one note that I want to point out. Um, this went around on Twitter yesterday and uh, blew my mind. Ken Griffey Jr. has that very iconic rookie card from Upper Deck in which he has the bat on his shoulder. He's got the couple of chains on. He's wearing the old school royal blue Mariners hat with the gold S on the front. That evidently was actually an airbrushed uh, photo that was initially his Class A San Bernardino spirit photo that they just changed the look of the hat to make it into a Mariners hat, which I never knew, and it blows my mind. Yeah, I never knew that either. That's kind of weird. I'll, I'll share one uh, Piazza story, too, while we're just like okay. a little thing we saw briefly on, on Twitter. I can't remember exactly where I saw this, um, but uh, Piazza was you know swinging in at his home, um, and for some reason, I can't remember why, Ted Williams was in the area. And, you know, buddy, his dad being buddies with Tommy Lasorda, things got called in, whatever. Ted Williams goes to see Mike Piazza swing as a kid. And uh, Piazza's, you know, as nervous as all heck, you know, you're swinging in front of the greatest hitter of all time. What is he going to say? What What is going to happen? And, you know, somebody asked Williams, do you have any pointers for him? He's like, no, 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 he'll be fine. He'll be a major leaguer. And this is before he was drafted. So, like, we didn't – nobody thought – hey, you know, this guy's going to be drafted low. We should set expectations really low. Uh, Ted Williams saw something in his swing from a young age, and the the kicker to the end of the story was uh, Ted asked him, hey, Mike, have you ever read my book on hitting? And Mike smiled a big smile because he knew he had memorized the entire thing. That is awesome. Yeah, that's just uh, two Hall of Famers now. Also, fun fact, same book that uh, Chris Bryant's dad used to teach Chris Bryant and Joey Gallo how to hit. So See, there you go. It's all baseball symmetry. All comes back <laughs> to the, all comes back to it. Uh, Sam, let's move along. Congratulations to those guys, by the way, since we know they're obviously tuned in uh, to the Minor League Baseball podcast, the show as they the do show, every week, of course, which you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, which I'm sure both Mike Piazza and Ken Griffey Jr. have done. Uh, but there was a trade that went down. 
last week in uh, what would constitute a shocking way, I would say, for a lot of people who did not really see it going down in the way that it did. But the New York Yankees acquired fireballing closer Aroldis Chapman from the Cincinnati Reds. Obviously, we're going to talk about this story a lot coming up with Sam's interview, but this trade uh, has sparked a whole lot of different opinions. The Yankees sent four prospects to the Cincinnati Reds to get Aroldis Chapman. None of those guys was ranked higher than number six. And I think as it looks from a baseball perspective, the Yankees really made out pretty well getting a guy like Aroldis Chapman. But there is so much more that goes into this trade. Chapman, uh, Major League Baseball, still investigating the domestic violence incident uh, against him. That could result in a suspension, uh, which could, I heard the other day, depending on the length of that suspension, could delay his free agency until after the 2017 season. That's all at the Major League level. At the Minor League level, the Reds now appear to be committing to a rebuild. But did they get enough in this deal? Because that's what I think this is coming down to. You're trading a guy who's obviously damaged goods for what Aroldis Chapman is alleged to have done, but the prospect package that they brought back, I think, has a lot of people asking questions. Yeah, well, this just kind of plays into the thing you mentioned it there, that the Reds are rebuilding, so they're going to take as many prospects as they can, and what they've essentially got here, I think, is a little bit of a... Um, yeah, they took four guys, Eric Chigailo, Rookie Davis, Tony Renda, and Caleb Cotham, Um None of which stand out as like top 100 guys. You know, we go back uh, before this news broke on Chapman um, about the domestic violence issues and the possible suspension that's going to come down from that. Uh, the Dodgers were rumored to be interested and had agreed to a trade. And the return package there at the time, they didn't say exactly what it was, but it believed that it was a top prospect involved. Um, and later it kind of came out that. Jose Peraza was initially involved in that deal. He ended up going to the Reds anyways, and the Todd Frazier deal with the White Sox also involved that three-team trade. Um, but Jose Peraza is definitely better as a prospect in current value right now than anything that the, the Reds got for Chapman from the Yankees. That said, you know there are some interesting pieces here. It's not something I would necessarily write home about, something to get super, super excited. But Rookie Davis is coming off a really good year uh, between two levels this year. Eric Jagailo, former first-round pick out of Notre Dame. Um, you know, Davis this year actually has jumped up. MLB.com kind of redid their rankings once these guys uh, came into the red system. So Davis checks in at number eight now um, in the red system, one spot ahead, ahead of Jagailo, who's number nine. Um, so they got two top 10 prospects right now in, in what is a very good system. Um, so these guys will definitely help them. Uh, whether they're impact guys will kind of remain to be seen. Um, I Personally, I'm a little higher on Jagailo. Uh, you know, he, he, they have him down for 60-grade power here. I think he could certainly develop that as a third baseman. Um, he is an advanced college guy. Had some problems this year with a knee injury. Um, so once he gets healthy, I think he, he's going to be an interesting piece for them going forward, especially now with Frazier out, um, kind of clearing that spot at the hot corner. So we'll see where it goes. But you're right. Having not knowing exactly how long Chapman's going to be suspended, um, not knowing if they, the Yankees are going to get another year out of him. Um, you know, the, the Reds basically got what they could out of a trade for him. He's no longer in the system. He's not their headache anymore as, as far as the suspension goes. And they got something so that. That's kind of where it stands, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, is that he is no longer their issue to deal with. Um, Jagailo was the higher-ranked prospect of the two ranked guys at the time of the trade. Sam noted their updated rankings. He was number six for the Yankees when the trade went down, and Rookie Davis was number 10. Tony Renda and Caleb Cotham obviously going along in that deal also. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this point a year ago, if you would have thought that the, the Reds were going to deal away Aroldis Chapman, I think you would have expected a much more differently structured deal than this. But we saw that it appeared like such a deal was set to go down with the Dodgers and then all this off-the-field stuff uh, broke. And that's really the, the bigger story is what comes out of that um, and not necessarily what it means from a baseball standpoint, as we know, in these circumstances. So uh, we wanted to discuss the, the prospect impact of that for the Cincinnati Reds, who it appears at this stage have gone into full-on embracing the rebuild mode headed toward 2016 and beyond. And maybe as, as of right now, I would say pretty clearly cut the most difficult baseball division uh, in Major League Baseball in which to compete. Um, last but not least in three strikes of episode number 40 of the show before the show podcast, there was a phenomenal 
story put on the site this week by our good pal Josh Jackson, who kind of dove into the tale of minor league free agency. And the world of minor league baseball is unglamorous in a lot of ways. Minor league free agency is the dog-eat-dog most difficult and uh, least sympathetic part of the world of minor league baseball. And Jeremy Barfield, who was featured in this story, formerly of the Rockies organization most recently this season, but obviously spent a lot of time with the Oakland Athletics. He's been a well-traveled guy uh, throughout the world of minor league baseball. He put it pretty clearly when he said, quote, nobody cares about minor league free agents. Honestly, I don't know where I'll end up or if I'll get a job. It's the same situation a lot of guys are in, and there's nothing we as players can do. They say, if you don't like it, play better, but it's not always based on how you play. This is a great story. This is one of those ones I think everybody who's interested in minor league baseball really should check out. Oh, for sure. And and Josh did a great job. He chose three kind of case studies here. Matt Perk, Jeremy Barfield, as you mentioned, and He-Man Choi. Um, Choi is the the one I think I might be a little interested in just because he's a Rule 5 pick this year in that you know he he had a broken fibula this year, didn't play a lot, um, got signed by the Orioles as a minor league free agent, and then got picked up by the Angels, who could have signed him as a free agent anyways in the Rule 5 draft. So it's it's just really interesting how that works out. But it's something to consider when you're looking at the box scores, going to games, and finding out this guy signed as a free agent all the stuff that has to go into that. And sometimes these guys get multiple offers. I mean, you know, He-Man Choi got a number of different offers, and he got to kind of pick what was best for him um, when he ended up did sign with the uh, with the Orioles. But like Matt Perk talked about how the White Sox called him first, and he, that really kind of stuck with him. Um, but th- these aren't necessarily like other – or this isn't Major League Baseball. It's not the NBA. It's not – you know, these other major free agent signings where you're sitting there and just waiting for offers to come in. If you're somebody like Barfield, you know, you just, you wait for one offer to come in and you jump at the chance, even if it's just to show up at spring training. Yeah. And you're waiting on a one-year deal for the minimum with no signing bonus. I mean, this is not, yeah, exactly. It's not like you're Zach Granke sitting around weighing a bunch of offers on who's going to come in and outbid everybody else. You're basically looking for the best possible situation. But, uh, I mean, this is one of the toughest times of year, and I think Josh really illustrated it well in the open to this story in which he talks about how Jeremy Barfield, like everybody, really liked watching the World Series, but the last out of Game 5 carries a lot of different significance when you're a minor league free agent because that means five days later – you're unemployed. Um, and so this is one of those things that you don't really think about when you punch your ticket, you buy a you know a $9 seat to a game in June. These guys, in a lot of cases, are really fighting for their employment. They're fighting for their professional lives from a day-to-day basis. And it's not a circumstance for most of them that they've got some big financial um, you know cushion to fall back on because the vast majority of guys did not get a huge signing bonus, were not drafted very high. Um, so this is a really stressful time of year, and especially now as it gets into January, you start getting toward pitchers and catchers reporting this is a tough time of year for a lot of guys who are still wondering where they're going to end up and if they're going to land anywhere going toward 2016 yeah a lot of these guys have to go into independent ball and that's another worry Barfield talked a little bit about what that process is like is that you're just you're packing into you know as many hotel rooms as many people as let you sleep on their couch as you can and just waiting for offers and sometimes you you hope it's the best place but sometimes you know you're 27 and you're an outfielder and Teams just need a fourth or fifth outfielder, so they'll call, and you have to hop on a plane to Hartford, you know, in 15 minutes. That's just the way it goes, and it it goes to show, you know, just the dedication these guys have um, if they are playing, you know, deep into their 20s, even 30s, um, you know, at at still at this minor league level, even if they haven't achieved their dreams of the majors yet. Jeremy Barfield, if you want an idea of how his 2015 went, he uh, started the season in the Rockies organization in spring training, was released shortly thereafter. He played in independent ball for 34 games uh, for two separate independent teams. He played in the Mexican League for 11 games with Quintana Roo. That's a team in Cancun. And then he was brought back to the Rockies organization where he played combined uh, 26 games with AA New Britain and 42 games with AAA Albuquerque. So he's played in 68 minor league games in the United States in affiliated ball 
while playing the entire season. That was the small little snippet of his year that was spent actually in affiliated ball in the States while still playing the entire year and just bouncing all over the place. So it's, yeah, it's definitely a, a, it's a gauntlet for these guys. Yeah, for sure. Let's wrap up three strikes then for episode number 40 of the show before the show. Again, congratulations to Major League Baseball's two Hall of Famers and guys who had some uh, some pretty illustrious minor league careers. Sam will have a story on that coming up on the site as well. Mike Piazza and Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, headed into the Hall of Fame this summer. Um, but we are going to pivot to some perhaps future stars of the Major Leagues and hear about the next step in the Cincinnati Reds organization as a big deal made to send a role Chapman out of town and acquire a package of prospects. Jeff Graupe will join the show coming up next, the player development director of the Cincinnati Reds to discuss that deal and more with Sam. Our uh, guest is Cincinnati Reds director of player development, Jeff Graupe. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Um, how's the offseason been treating you so far? You know, thanks for having me. Um, it, it's been busy, as I'm sure Everyone knows it's, it's kind of been an exciting time to be in the minor leagues with the Reds. Um, had a lot of turnover, a lot of new faces coming in that we'll get a pretty good look at here in spring training. But um, instructors, scouts, uh, my seat, uh, it's, it's a pretty fun time here. Yeah, definitely. And that's exactly where I wanted to kind of start off with you guys, just kind of generally um, you know, what have the trades this offseason between Chapman and Frazier, um, a couple other moves, what have the trades done to the farm system for the Reds? You know, I mean, as, as difficult as I think those trades were, and you're talking about two guys that were original Reds, um, I mean, Chapman often doesn't get thought of as a guy that was developed per se, but um, did sign as an amateur, came in, had some minor league time, which was a totally kind of different experience just because of putting a guy in at the upper levels and trying to figure out a plan that would kind of best suit him. And then Todd, um, as a high draft pick, that kind of worked his way up through the minors, um, had a lot of different kind of experiences. and um, Two guys that we've had a long time, cared about, and we're tough to see go. Um, I guess the flip side of that is we get opportunities to kind of acquire more new talent and get to work with them so like I said it's uh I think it strengthens the farm system um and adds some more good competition to the guys that we already have yeah and I kind of want to get into a little bit of some of the guys you did get um through those trades specifically with Jose Peraza um it's, it sounds like when that trade went down and he was coming over the Reds everybody kind of had an opinion on him whether you really really like his speed or really like his you know high average ability or if you just think he's a slap hitter it seems like everybody kind of really really liked him or didn't like him there there was no middle ground with him um how do you guys kind of view him um you know going forward now that he's in the system now that he's in the organization you know is he a major leaguer from the get-go do you think he needs a little more time in the minors you know what, what is your view on on jose praza now that he's in the system now that you've read a couple of reports on him yeah, yeah, and I think you, n you nailed the process. Um, to be honest, I mean, from what I'm doing, I'm I'm evaluating the player a lot like a fan would. I do have the benefit of some expert opinions from scouts um, in our statistical analysis department, so I, I get a little kind of behind the curtain peek. But I'm trying to figure out our plan as well, you know, and that's that's a lot of the fun part of putting the puzzle together. Um, to me, he. He seems like a guy with a really high line drive rate um, who I know a lot's been made of, of the on base uh, and the walk rate, which I do think are things that we can address. Um, but we see a guy who doesn't swing and miss often at all. Um, and with this combination of speed and line drive, full field approach, we see a guy that's going to support a pretty good ball and play um, ratio. So I, I think this guy's got a chance to be really good, and I'm excited to get him, get him in our system. Yeah, and we talked a little bit offensively there, but what about defensively? I know he's got some time in center field. You know, the Dodgers and Braves played him a little different spots. I know you guys obviously have a very good speedy center fielder as it is at the major league level right now in Billy Hamilton. Um, but what have you kind of read? What, did, what are your scouts telling you about his defense, particularly at second? Yeah, I mean, at second, I think we think he's going to be a plus defender. Um, you kind of alluded to it. We've got plus defenders right now at the major league level in center 
at shortstop at second. So um, we're going to be creative. Uh, we're going to take a look at all options and figure out what we think is best for both us and Peraza long term. All right, and kind of going back a little bit, now that we have you, uh, going back to a trade that happened over the summer, um, particularly with Cueto, and you guys brought in some, uh, I think it was three left-handers, but one I I want to touch on is Cody Reed, who seems like he had a really breakout season this year, um, starting in the Royal system, then coming over to you guys and pitching really well at Pensacola. Um, With a guy like that, when he does have a breakout season, how much did it feel like you guys got him at the right time? Um, when he's on this upswing that he he currently had, you know, start of the season through the end of the season. Yeah, uh, I, I think our scouting director Chris Buckley always says that we get the players that we see play well, and you can't have a scout in the park every single night. Um, so when you get a guy like this who has really good stuff, um, who has, if he struggled with anything in the past, it's been consistency. Um, this is a guy with, with electric stuff that we were really high on and wanted to target in this deal. And I know talking to the Kansas City guys, they'd, they'd raved about him as well. So it's not like we were surprising anyone. Um, he's really talented. He's really big. Uh, I, I was really impressed with his on-field makeup in terms of how competitive and aggressive he was. He fits right in with, I think, the strength of our system, which is starting pitching. Uh, and he's another good one to put in that fold. So... Yeah, I think timing combined with doing the work behind the scenes and, and picking the right guys, uh, this this is one that um, I'm really pumped up about. Yeah, definitely. And kind of staying with pitching, um, but moving to guys or a guy you guys have had for a while now, um, you know, 2011 first-round pick, Robert Stevenson, always been at the top of prospect list for you guys. Everybody talks about his electric fastball, his really, really good curveball. Um, you know, the results necessarily haven't been right up there at least in terms of era and walk rate um but he's always been able to pick up a lot of strikeouts uh mm-hmm. you know he's turning 23 in february pitched a little bit in louisville last year um given his age given how long he's been in the system that kind of thing um, and the fact that he's on the cusp on the ma- of the majors himself how much is this kind of a make or break year for him in, in terms of what his future can be and you know in terms of figuring out all the stuff he's needed to figure out yeah, no, I think Robert has done a nice job of addressing things as he's gone up. Uh, you hit on it in that he's he's still really young, and to be at such a high level in the minor leagues, uh, pitching and showing that he has had success, I thought this was a nice bounce back season for him from what was a challenging 2014. Um, he's really taking a step forward in learning who he is, in my opinion. And I do think there's some things that, that he has keyed. That I think we're going to see the best of Robert this spring. And another guy that was at the top of your system also has been in there, you know, was drafted a year later, Jesse Winker. Um, just looking at his splits, you know, going from the first half to the second half in Pensacola, went from a 700 OPS in the first half to a 941 OPS in the second half. Um, how, what does he have to do this offseason? What are you guys going to be working with him in spring training, that kind of thing, to maintain you know, that second-half push that he had, you know, just the increase in power numbers, um, really seemed to find himself. What does he have to do to carry that momentum um, going into you know, potentially Louisville uh, this spring? Yeah, yeah. last winter we challenged Jesse to really elevate some of the non-statistical parts of his game with his defense, with his throwing, with his base running. Um, to me... Jesse is a player that that I was really proud of in 2015. Um, he wasn't getting success that I think anyone necessarily wanted for him. Um, but looking at a lot of the, the markers um, that we, we use, uh, some of it kind of being proprietary data, some of it easy stuff like just strike out the walk percentage, line drive percentage that, that's kind of available anywhere he was doing a lot of really good things in the first half. And although he did make some adjustments, I was really happy in that he didn't just start chasing results and get away from his approach. And I think a lot of the success that could have been expected started to happen the second half. And it it's nice that it broke down in such an easy split, uh, first half, second half. But I think he showed what he's capable of. Uh, and I think he really did a great job of battling through and learning through 
the adversity of not having immediate success in the first half. So to me, it's it's a great year and uh, that he he's better than he was when he started it. So uh, that's positive for me. And uh, just kind of to touch on one other move, you know, Reds made this this offseason, uh, bringing in Jake Cave as a Rule 5 pick. I know that's, you know, a major league move. He has to stick with the Reds at, at the major league level. Um, but as a guy who played double-A last year at Trenton in the Yankee system, you know, another Yankees guy you guys are bringing over. Um, you know, what, did you, what are some of the reports you've read? What are you hearing from your scouts, you know, that made you guys believe he's a guy who could, could compete at the major league level and, and keep a job there? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think he has a, a bunch of things going for him uh, in terms of versatility to the ability to play all three outfield spots. Um, he has a carrying niche um, where his splits tend to Lindsay to believe that there's a role that he could be successful in. And uh, everything we've gotten on his makeup is that he can be challenged. And kind of jumping back to what we talked about with Winker in terms of facing adversity and not folding. So uh, I think kind of the stars aligned and there ended up being a pretty good opportunity for us there to, to take a shot like this and hopefully it pays long-term dividends. And I'll, I'll leave you on this one. Um, you know, given the amount of moves, you know, the Reds have made, bolstered their minor league system, farm system, all that. Um, you know, who's the player you don't think anybody's talking about enough that the Reds have, have got this off season or, you know, dur- even during the season was a couple of the moves they made. Who's a guy who, you know, isn't getting the attention you think he deserves or is set to surprise people in 2016 as a new guy? Um, I guess that's a tough one. As a, as a new guy, I was really excited about what Curry Maya showed. Um, I think his raw stuff, I, I think everyone saw it on the all-star circuit, uh, what he can do. Um, and I think his, his best is still in front of him. Uh, internally, I think Tyler Malley had an incredible year uh, as a high school pitcher who's just gotten better every year. Uh, I, I think he throws harder than a lot of people realize. Uh, his command is really up there with anybody in the air system, and he uh, he's trying to get a pretty, pretty great 2015, so I'm excited to see what he can do as a bounce-back riff. All right, great. We'll look at for both of them this upcoming 2016 season, starting with spring training here in the next month or two. Um, so that, that'll do it. Thank, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us, and uh, enjoy the rest of your offseason and the uh, season to come. No, thank you very much. Sam Dykstra and one of the uh, men in charge of the future of the Cincinnati Reds system, player development director Jeff Graupe, joining the show. It's really good stuff there. And one of the prized pieces of that future for the Cincinnati Reds, and a guy we did not know if we were going to get a chance to talk to on the show today, we are going to get a chance to talk to Eric Jagailo, who is, as of right now, the number nine-ranked prospect overall in the Cincinnati Reds system and their top-ranked third-base prospect and one of the centerpieces of that deal that sent a role Chapman to the Bronx, Eric Jagailo joins the show next. We are going to continue along talking about this uh, fresh face in the Cincinnati Reds organization, a series of them, but one of them joins us now. Eric Jagailo is the newest uh, top third base prospect in the Cincinnati Reds system. And uh, Eric, welcome to the show, man. The uh, The trade goes down. You are now a, a member of an organization, a different league. You're going to be going to different minor league affiliates, all that kind of stuff. But it's obviously got to be pretty exciting for you as well. Just give us kind of some of your thoughts when this trade went down. You knew you were going to be headed over to the, the Cincinnati Reds system. Yeah, first off, thanks for having me and everything. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a, it was a interesting time. You know, I've never really gone through this. This is only you know a few years in the pro ball, so definitely the first time I've gone through and whatnot. So I didn't really know what to expect. You know, kind of I was the weather. I'm up in Chicago right now, and the weather wasn't good that day. Um, we actually got we got a lot of snow and everything, and so I was outside helping my parents shovel the driveway. So I didn't have my phone on me or anything. Um, had no idea that, you know, the Yankees were even thinking about trading anybody. And then next thing you know, I get a voicemail from Brian Cashman. And then uh, about 5, 10, 15 minutes later, I get another phone call and I answer it. And, you know, he kind of gave me the news. But, you know, after after that kind of settled down, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to join the Reds organization. I couldn't, I couldn't be more excited for this opportunity. 
Yeah, and have the Reds reached out to you yet and kind of explained, you know, what your role is going to be in the, the system or anything, any kind of expectations they have for you coming into this first spring training? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, Walt Jockety, um, he reached out. He's the general manager, I believe. And then uh, the manager, Brian Price, both of them reached out to me and then their farm director. And, you know, they all welcomed me to the organization. Um, I had I had good conversations with uh, both uh, Mr. Jockety and Mr. Price, you know, and they kind of – they kind of gave me some information, you know, they were excited to have me. Um, they said that, you know, they kind of had their eyes on me in the draft, which I believe the Reds were picking 27th and the Yankees picking 26th. So um, I went to the Yankees first, but, you know, I, I'm excited for it. And, you know, it's a new opportunity, but, you know, like you said, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's going to be fun and I'm, I'm really going to enjoy it. So. Eric, when you make a, a move like this, um, obviously it's going to present some challenges no matter what, but the nice thing in this circumstance for you is you get to go over with a few teammates, and Rookie Davis is one of those guys who joins you going over. Um, this is a, a Reds organization that seems to be pretty well committed now to building to compete within the next few seasons in a really, really tough division. And for you guys now to know that you're a part of that, um, with so much young talent that's already in that system, how exciting is it to not only be able to, to look at what the future will hold in a system that's trying to rebuild and trying to get back to the top of the NL Central, but to be able to do it with guys that you know, too, and somebody like Rookie Davis who slots in right next to you now in, uh, in MLB Pipeline's rankings in the red system. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm fortunate enough where there's, you know, four great guys going over there with me. They picked up Jake Cave, who's one of my best friends. Um, you know, I played with him for the past two seasons. They picked him up in the Rule 5 draft, and then you got Rookie Caleb and Tony Renda. Um, I got to know Tony pretty well in uh, in the double-A season when he got traded over to us. So, I mean, they're all really good guys, and I think that that's one of the things that we're going to take over from, you know, some of the stuff that we learned uh, with the Yankees is just that championship culture. And Obviously, there's there's not one better organization to talk about, you know, World Series and everything than the Yankees do. But, you know, that that's all of our ultimate goals in, you know, baseball and in our careers is to help the big league level and to accomplish one goal, and that is to be, you know, world champions. So, I mean, it's really exciting. You know, it's it's, it's cool because it's going to be a lot of familiar faces. But then, but then again, I, I know there's going to be great guys in the Reds organization who have the same goal. So it's going to be fun to try to accomplish that. And kind of looking back at at this past year, um, seemed like kind of a difficult one for you, just in that you were weren't able to get back on the field after a knee injury uh, in mid June. But uh, before that, it looked like you know your numbers were solid. It looked like you were doing well at the Double A level, which is a you know. A, difficult level to jump to after you were in high A the year before. Um, how would you kind of characterize this year and how, how are you able to rehab and how's the need doing now? Yeah. I mean, besides that unfortunate event, I mean, that, that kind of happened. And uh, from, from what I got from our doctor was that wasn't an injury that happened this year. It was kind of one of those things where he said it could have happened when I was in high school. I played basketball in high school, which is more of a, you know, kind of a basketball type injury. So it might have happened there and just surfaced now. So I'm glad that, you know, it, it could be all fixed. Unfortunately, it uh, caused my season to end shortly. Um, but I mean, I was, I was happy with how everything was going. I was happy with the progressions. Um, I learned a lot and, you know, the, the staff did a good job of, you know, helping me out and adjusting to that level. So I mean, I really, I, besides besides the injury, you know, I, I couldn't be. I, I don't really have anything negative to say about it. You know, I had a great time. It was it was a fun experience. It was a it was a really good you know uh, competition and everything. And then now the knee is all good. Um, I'm feeling really good. It, it ended up being a little bit longer rehab than what we first uh, expected. But I mean, that was my number one goal. Is once I knew I had surgery, um, you know, just to make sure that I was ready for spring training in 2016. And, and that I think that I'm going to be ready and better than, you know, before I think I feel like my body's in better shape than it was before the injury. So I'm, I'm happy with the progression right now. And it's interesting you bring up spring training and that, you know, you've been invited as a non non roster invitee uh, to major league camp. What do you expect that to be like, you know, working with the, the guys at the top level and, and being around a little earlier? Yeah, I, I had the uh, I had a couple of fortunate experiences last year. I might have had four or five games over over with the Yankees, so I got a little bit of a taste of it. But I mean, that was one of my goals coming into the season is you know to get invited to camp, um, just to kind of be around those guys and learn some things from some of the veterans. But then also just you know 
just kind of see, you know, what what else you can do at that level. And, I mean, it, it's a fun experience when you go over there, you know, and just to be a part of it now, you know, from, right from the beginning, it's going to be my first time. So I, I don't really know what to expect. I've never been to Arizona before. So I've heard great things about all the ballparks and that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm kind of going in there with, you know, some open eyes and just kind of just going to take it all in. Eric, when you look uh, toward making this next step, um, it, I guess in a, in a certain sense, there's got to be some bittersweetness that comes from leaving an organization like the Yankees. But what do you think you learned as a member of the Yankees organization that you can take forward and apply now as a member of the Red System? You talked about, I mean, the championship culture with the Yankees obviously is more than anybody else can tout in any other system. But now that that chapter of your career is closed, what do you think you learned as a ball player, as a person in the Yankees system? that is going to help you going forward? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't say one bad thing about the Yankees organization. I mean, everything that they did was first class. And, uh, you know, it's it's really cool. Obviously, uh, a lot of people know that I went to Notre Dame and there were so many parallels that I saw between the University of Notre Dame and, the you know, the Yankees organization. But I, I think that, you know, one of the biggest things I'll remember is just just the way uh, they, they kind of taught you to be a professional, you know, how to go about your business the right way. Um, you know, they, you know, really did a good job of, you know, just teaching us those little type of things that, you, you know, are hard to, hard to show, you know, about the media and all that kind of stuff. And then, and then they gave, they, uh, they kind of uh, gave us exposure to a lot of guys. I mean, I've, I, I met uh, Derek Jeter and I was part of the thing called captain's camp last year. And, and Gary Dembo brought in Jeter. He brought in Tino Martinez. I mean, he brought in a bunch of other guys that Jim Hendry talked to us, you know, and they all gave us different, you know, opinions about other stuff, you know, talked about, you know, their championship culture, the times that they played, what, you know, what they were looking for and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, there was just a lot of cool experiences. There's a lot of cool people that I've met a part of it. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where you just try to grab as much as you can and take that on to the next organization and, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, it sticks on to a couple other guys and you can, and you can learn some new things from some of these Reds guys too. Very cool. Very cool stuff. Eric Jagailo, one of the newest members of the Cincinnati Reds organization. And uh, as you noted, Eric, uh, Jake Cave, another guy who's come over to the system, we have on the MLB Pipeline prospect rankings, there's a photo of every guy in the top 30, and there are a whole lot of Trenton Thunder jerseys popping up in that Cincinnati Reds list, which is pretty funny, but kind of cool for you guys. And uh, Eric, congrats on a a good season and and finally feeling healthy and stuff coming into this offseason, headed towards spring training. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with the Reds, man. All the best going forward. Uh, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Well, if you look out the window where I am and where I assume you guys are, it doesn't really feel like opening day is uh, three months away. But opening day is three months away. And uh, we welcome in our good friend Benjamin Hill to discuss some things that will have some serious ramifications for opening day. Uh, hey, Ben. Hey, Tyler. Hi, Sam. I actually just made that that judgment on the weather there without actually knowing what the weather is like there. Is it nice? It's dark at 540. In the- oh, okay. Yeah, so oh, it's yeah. miserable the way it is here also. Yeah. It's 340, and it feels absolutely miserable. Okay, good. Then I'm glad I didn't lie. Um, well, let's tackle the big story of the week, which is this. The Hartford Yard Goats, who are set to open play for the 2016 season, formerly the New Britain Rockcats, will be doing so. We know that there will be a Yard Goats team. We don't know where that team is yet playing. Ben, fill us in on the latest. Well, we do know the team is going to be playing in Hartford. Um, you know, they were the New Britain Rockcats last season, and now they are relocating to become the uh, Hartford Yard Goats. Uh, the issue is um, due to some um, money issues between the developer that's building the stadium, which is called Dunkin' Donuts Park. Uh, issues between the developer and the city, which is funding the stadium, have brought construction to a standstill. There is approximately a $10 million that needs to be accounted for right now due to cost overruns in construction of the stadium. Um, it's a very complex situation, you know, involving, you know, minor league baseball, the Eastern League, uh, the ownership of the Yard Goats, uh, obviously the developer uh, center plan, which is, um, developing the stadium as well as the surrounding area the city of hartford which is largely footing the bill for this project a lot of moving parts i mean 
I'm sure people in the local media in Hartford could talk about this for hours. Um, but the bottom line is that for the third season in a row, we're going to have a minor league team opening the season on the road um, while they wait for their new ballpark to be completed. You know, that was El Paso's situation in 2013, uh, Biloxi Shuckers in 2014, and now it's almost certain to happen in Hartford. Um, so nothing is set in stone. There's nothing official announced, but I can guarantee you that right now contingency plans are being drawn up. Uh, people are scrambling all over minor league baseball in their various capacities to figure out what are we going to do come opening day when this new stadium in Hartford is is not going to be ready. Is there any indication that this could last as long as as June as it did with Biloxi this year? Would the road trip have to last? I know like they're still figuring things out. It could get figured out you know, this week or anything like that, and that would speed up the process. But is there any idea of how long this opening road trip could be? No. I mean, this really didn't blow up. Um, these cost issues and these uh, tensions between the city and the developer uh, didn't really blow up until very much at the end of the year, um, you know, like late December during when most yeah. of the baseball world was sleeping during the holiday break. Um, so there's so much to be sorted out. There is no real clarity right now in terms of how long this could go on. Um, it's not so much that construction started late as was the case in Biloxi last year. It's just that now they've gotten to a point where it's hard to proceed given the uh, vast differences um, that are now taking place in terms of how much is going to fund the ballpark, who's going to foot the bill for that, and how they can proceed in a manner uh, that makes all parties. Well, I don't think anyone's going to be happy, but at least you know satisfies everyone to some degree so things can keep moving and minor league baseball can be played in Hartford hopefully in, as soon as possible. Well, and the crazy thing about this situation is because, like you said, Ben, it, it kind of erupted so late, the Yard Goats in the city of Hartford, the ownership, the franchise, they're left with somewhat limited options now, uh, especially being three months away from opening day. There's a story in the Hartford Current about how possibly they could be playing in an extended road trip, playing at the home ballpark of what would technically be the visiting teams. They open, for example, against Richmond. Maybe they play that series at the Diamond in Richmond. Don't know what the, the scenario would be surrounding that if it was to be a permanent road trip. There also are other ballparks in Connecticut, sort of in the Hartford area, but even some of those, it appears, would not be an option. New Britain, uh, their former home, where we saw last year Biloxi actually played some old games or some games at their uh, former ballpark in Huntsville. Uh, that's not an option. An independent league team has moved in there. Uh, Yale Field, which used to host the New Haven Ravens, uh, there is some work being done there, so that doesn't appear to be an option. Dodd Stadium in Norwich does seem like it could be uh, a place for the Yard Ghosts to land, at least temporarily. Now, Eastern League President Joe McEachern said that's not something that I'm really comfortable exploring publicly yet. Uh, but at this stage, this because it comes up all so late, puts this team in this front office, especially in a really, really tough spot. And I think they somewhat we're starting behind the eight ball already. There was a whole controversy over the name, obviously. And it just seems like right now this is the last thing that anybody in that front office wants to deal with. Yeah, and that is who I do have sympathy with in, this, in a situation like this, and that the front office are just people you know, doing their jobs, you know, living their dreams, presumably by working in baseball, and uh, they're the ones who are going to get most of the flack in a lot of ways because they're the ones who are dealing with the season ticket holders saying, so when do we actually get to come to games? When am I going to am I going to get a refund for uh, the games that you aren't playing? And to deal with all that, you know, justifiable public anger that things are not going the way they should, especially when public money is involved. But really, that's not the front office's. Uh, you know, they're not the ones who've created this situation. They're the ones doing the best to build a brand within that. And I think the yard goats have done a a very good job of that. Um, you know, staying positive you know, within that situation. Uh, but just in general, there there's so many moving parts right now. It's just really hard to say how things will go. Well, to kind of move it towards the kind of the same realm of ideas of, of minor league baseball parks and that kind of thing. You talked this week with a West Michigan front office guy about public funding and how, what goes into that and how clubs kind of secure or private funding, um, how they secure that to, to build a ballpark. What did you hear from him? Well, just in the midst of you know another uh, controversy regarding building a stadium, I, I decided to write a story which will be up on the site on Friday, January eighth, two thousand sixteen. Just uh, to solidify, <laughs> to solidify ourselves, yeah. just to, to place solidify ourselves in place and time here. Time is a flat uh, circle. 
But I was thinking, you know, there's so few ballparks that are completely privately funded, and it got me thinking about West Michigan Whitecaps, whose fifth third ballpark is privately funded. So I talked to Lou Chamberlain, one of the franchise co-founders, and talked to him how he went about, um, you know, leading the charge to get a privately funded stadium, um, which really involved, you know, accumulating a lot of private investors um, and getting enough money to then go to a bank you know, to have enough equity to then to get a commercial loan that would fund the actual project. And they were successful in doing that. Uh, Lou Chamberlain and his uh, partner, Denny Baxter, you know, they got involved with the Kane County Cougars prior to working in West Michigan to have give themselves, um, you know, experience in the industry to really understand how things work. And uh, they pulled it off. And now that ballpark, uh, Fifth Third Stadium, Fifth there's so many fifth third ballparks. <laughs> yeah, there's like the seventy five. It's like BB and T's. There's a bunch of those too. Right, yeah. but fifth third in Michigan is now, in West Michigan is now uh, you know twenty two years old, and uh, because they funded it privately, then they get to make the decision on uh, how to reinvest that money, how to make stadium improvements, and really how to control you know their whole revenue stream. So it's worked out really well for them. And of course, I asked Lou Chamberlain. I said, "So do you think?" more teams should follow this model. Do you think this is something that can be done now? And he said, well, there's huge benefits. It's definitely possible, but he thinks it'd be a lot harder in this day and age to pull it off because the costs of doing this have risen so much more. Even in a period of 20 years, they have risen um, by huge amounts, the cost to both build a stadium and the cost in most cases to acquire a franchise. Um, So the amount of money that you would have to raise up front completely privately is a lot more than they did, which I believe for the stadium was something along the lines of about six and a half million dollars, which equivalent of ten or eleven million right now. And you cannot build a ballpark right now for ten or eleven million dollars. So it would be a lot harder to do it privately. Um, but it was just great to talk to someone who did go that route and who is reaping the benefits. The whole franchise is obviously reaping the benefits, and to hope that somehow that can be a model for the future, although it is very difficult. This is one of those issues that is just kind of a constantly churning um, side of the game of minor league baseball, especially. And it's it's not something that I really knew a lot about until I got into uh, the world of minor league baseball. But this happens in every league, every season. Um, I mean, we've talked so often about the California League and a couple of teams there who've really been in tough ballpark situations. Uh, I know the, the Bakersfield ownership group just bought the Lynchburg Hillcats in the Carolina League. There's always been a constant discussion about if that eventually will be a shift at the high A level. And it all comes down to ballparks. It all comes down to facilities. So when Dunkin' Donuts Park opens in Hartford, it's going to be a first-class facility. It's going to be arguably the best in minor league baseball. But at this stage now, it's a really big wrench. And and like you said, Ben, I mean, you feel worse for the people who have to deal with it in that front office because it's not their fault that this is happening now. No, it's like working in customer – like any customer service job. Right. You know, someone has an issue with their product. They're not going to be calling for a solution and speaking to the person who caused that problem, but they're going to transfer their anger into whoever is representing that organization. And, uh, you know, that's what the front office has to deal with. And uh, it's an unfortunate situation, but Biloxi made it through on the other side. El Paso is a huge success story yeah. in a lot of cases, and they had to deal with this as well. So, what you hope is that this doesn't become too over the top challenging and that in a couple of years, We'll be looking at this whole thing as a success story, um, not just for the team itself, but for the city of Hartford, which is, you know, using Dunkin' Donuts Park as a centerpiece for a much larger downtown redevelopment project. That's the public funding side of it. The private funding side of it, you can read in Ben's story, which is about the West Michigan Whitecaps and their ballpark. And uh, so, again, it's uh, one of those always spinning carousels of minor league baseball and uh, really interesting stuff. Um, Today, on the day in which we are recording this, is National Bobblehead Day. And I am not in the room with you guys, but Sam, I hear that Ben has brought uh, some, some honored guests for the day. Yeah, we uh, we were carrying stuff to the room to to record this, and I just saw him carrying a bunch of things. I was like, "What are you bringing?" And I forgot it was National Bobblehead Day. So these are things that we. If you ever get to see Ben's desk, um, I know Tyler, you've seen it when you visit. Yep, just it's a, all these things. It's hallowed minor league real estate. Yeah, exactly. It so, is. It is. There's not much square footage in that hallowed <laughs> minor league real estate. Well, it's New York, so it's very fitting. It's exactly. really valuable, and it's the size of a, like a coat closet. Exactly, yeah. and I like my apartment, but again, I don't have tons of space. So people talk to me knowing what my job is, and they think I have 4,000 bobbleheads. Really, I only have about 15, and most of them are, are on my desk uh, because you know where am I going to put them all? But through the years, I have collected a lot and in honor of National Bobblehead Day, which was started last year by uh, – 
you know, the National Bobblehead Museum, which will hopefully become a physical place at some point. Uh, two guys in Wisconsin have started that effort. Uh, but today is National Bobblehead Day. January 7th, 2016. So I brought in my three favorite bobbleheads uh, that I've collected through the years and that now reside on my desk. And, uh, you know, to kind of serve as a chaser to the uh, stiff shot that there was the stadium uh, talk that we just uh, went through. Uh, three of my favorites, and you can't see them, so I don't want to go too far and too deep into this. Uh, keep it light. But number one, not in order of best, but the first one I have here, Dallas Braden, given away by the Stockton Ports in which he is in street clothes lifting up his hooded sweatshirt to reveal his bare abdomen and his 209 tattoo native. on his yeah. abdomen. It's yeah. more of a bobble torso than a bobble It is head, a bobble but... torso. You are correct. But Dallas Braden is a Stockton native. He pitched a perfect game for the Oakland A's a number of years back, uh, became even more of a local hero, came back to Stockton, You know, got the key to the city, was honored at a ports game. And uh, when he was on the field being honored – he lifted up his shirt to reveal a 209 tattoo, which is Stockton's area code, and the ports made a bobblehead of that, of Dallas Braden, giving the thumbs up, has a real smarmy grin on his face, and he's showing the 209 tattoo. I love that one. Then I've also got the Bowling Green Cave Shrimp bobble tail. Yeah. And that was when the Bowling Green Hot Rods were coming into being as a franchise and they had a name the team contest and cave shrimp which are apparently native to that general area, they're blind, um was one of the proposed team names which of course did not win and then the Bowling Green Hot Rods the next year um in what I believe was one of the first or the first what could have been night I yeah. thought they were like the ones who ushered that in. They ushered really in cool the idea of a what could have been night promo where they take an identity, a different identity, and build a night around what they could have been. So they had Bowling Green Cave Shrimp Night, and as part of that, they gave away Cave Shrimp Bobble Tales, which features a shrimp looking like a caveman swinging a bat. My, my bat is broken, and it has a bobble tail. And again, just really uh, creative stuff, and uh, I am honored to have it on my desk. And finally, well, actually, I will say this is my very favorite yeah, one. I was going to say this is my favorite, too. <laughs> of the ones you brought this is the the iowa cubs and if you look at it it's a very standard looking bobblehead just a player standing there leaning on a bat ball and glove down by his feet but at the base where the name usually is it says later and this is immortalizing all the players to be named later <laughs> in baseball history so the iowa cubs went ahead and made a bobblehead called later so they gave away the player to be named later bobblehead by literally naming him later that is outstanding and, uh, as a uh, someone who likes absurd humor and wordplay and just ridiculousness got to give it to the i clubs on that one so just wanted to share some of my favorite bobbleheads that i've collected through the years happy national bobblehead day everyone i uh hope you're celebrating it with uh, you and yours and uh i guess i'll see you uh, i did this joke on twitter but it doesn't work never mind i'm gonna try <laughs> You have to see it typed out. No, yeah. I just don't. I, yeah, I just don't know how to pronounce the words right. Well, don't even worry about it. I, I, make, too go, ma- I make too many jokes. As it I is. gotta go find it on Twitter, and then I'll laugh at it, and then people won't get what I'm laughing at. It's good. It's good. Uh, it's good podcasting magic here. Yeah, I said. Well, I said I would see you undulator. <laughs> oh, like because yeah. bobbleheads undulate. <laughs> yeah, but then I was like. Oh. I it's better said out loud. Yeah, I think it works. Yeah. I think it works really well. I was like, undulate, see, undulate. And it just didn't want to come out of my mouth, right? I blew it. I blew it. I had it in my <laughs> mind. I didn't work. But anyway, you know, it's not about me. It's about the bobbleheads. Oh, man. He is Benjamin Hill. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz. You can check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com as well. And uh, you can check out Ben's story, uh, West Michigan, the ballpark history there, and uh, how it kind of ties in in light of uh, the recent events as they've affected the Hartford Yard Goats in opening the 2016 season. Ben, we'll do it again next week. Talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. It's always a pleasure. Our biggest thanks to uh, three guests this week. Benjamin Hill, our weekly stalwart. Big thanks to Ben. And also Jeff Grappa and Eric Jagailo, the Cincinnati Reds. You can follow Eric on Twitter, by the way. He is at E underscore J-A-G-I-E-L-O. Jagailo, that's his last name. And uh, really good stuff for both of those guys. The Reds are caught. I mean, like we talked about a little bit ago, they're caught right now in probably the toughest division in baseball. And they're in one of those down stretches uh, that a team like Cincinnati in that market has to go through every so 
often, but uh, a lot of excitement for that organization right now as it appears from those two guys. Yeah, and like you mentioned, between the Cardinals, Pirates, and uh, the Cubs right now, all on the upswing, all arguably the three best teams in all of baseball. Um, you, know, you have to realize what you have and what you need to build towards. So the Reds are certainly undergoing a rebuild process now. This is how you do it. This is how you know you you trade what you can trade and get as much back as you can, um, and and that's how you end up with guys like Jagailo. So now we'll see how how they've done. You know, going forward. And with that, we are set to wrap up the 40th edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. You can find us on iTunes. We're there when you search the Minor League Baseball podcast, rate, review, and subscribe to the show there. You can also find us at MILB.com. Um, Sam, what do you have coming up? We've got, we're now out of the, the holiday lull. Uh, we're done with organization all-stars. We're done looking back at 2015. Everything now we're racing toward 2016. We've all got our lists of what our features and our prospect Q&As and all that kind of stuff. We've got a ton of good stuff coming to the site soon. What do you have up next? Yeah, what I'm working on are, are uh, prospect projections. The way uh, a lot of sites like to project on how particular players are going to do, and usually we only look at major leaguers. We like to see how you know Zach Greinke is going to project with the Diamondbacks this year. Uh, you know how a partic- particular trade target is going to project going forward. Um, but we're sticking to prospects. I'm, I'm creating tables now. Uh, we're going to start with the AL East next week. Um, how the top prospects in each system would project over 600 plate appearances or 200 innings if they're pitchers, um, how they would do if they played a full season of Major League Ball, exactly what would happen to them, what would happen to their numbers, how would they perform now. It's essentially a way of looking at how ready certain prospects are, at least according to this steamer projection system. Um, So it's going to come up with some interesting ideas of who's more ready than you think, who's not as ready as you think. Um, and whose skill set would translate really well um, if they were to start the season in opening day in the major leagues. Good stuff coming up there from Sam. Also some Hall of Fame stuff coming up as well. Benjamin Hill, as you heard, uh, up on the site now, his story about West Michigan's ballpark and the the private financing that went into getting that facility constructed. You can read that. Um, I'm going to have a prospect Q&A coming up with uh, San Spleen David Dahl next week because I figured when we had prospect Q&As got tossed out there, I figured that had to be the guy that I went after because that's the most clever turn of phrase that I was able to come up with in the entirety of 2015. So I got that coming up. Also, just today, this story will probably be closer to the end of the month but today I interviewed uh, former Blue Jays prospect Boomer Collins who is trying to convert himself from being a minor league baseball player to being a cricket star Uh, so I'll have a story on that interviewing Boomer Collins interviewing his coach Uh, it's kind of a reverse Rinku Singh story rather than bringing an Indian former cricketer over to play baseball on the American side a former baseball player trying his hand at cricket on the other side is this the John Ham sequel? Yeah, but I don't know who would play like Bizarro John Ham. I don't know who would be like. Why the, not just more John Ham? Maybe you. What yeah. if you could just like gave John Ham like a mustache? He could be like evil John Ham. <laughs> John Ham can grow a mustache. <laughs> I want to see John Ham with a mustache. John Ham has the greatest five o'clock shadow on the planet, so I'm sure the mustache would be no problem for him. Yeah, just of course. do that. We'll just make yeah. that happen. So that's one of the things I got coming up as well. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're ramping up. We're getting set. Six weeks away, pitchers and catchers start reporting all over the world of Major League and Minor League Baseball. So we are uh, we're pumped. Um, Sam, I believe, is going to head down to Florida. I'm going to head back to Arizona. It's like one of those things you can't stop thinking about because, as you noted a little while ago, it gets dark at like 1.15 in the afternoon now. So it just makes me very excited to think about things that aren't winter. <laughs> well, that's why they put spring in there, even though it starts in February, <laughs> just to give us hope. Episode number 40, wrapping up this edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. You can get in touch with us. Sam is on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykes or MILB. I am at Tyler Mon. Minor League Baseball is at MILB. Again, you can rate, review, subscribe to the show on iTunes. And shoot us an email if you got a question, a thought, a comment, something you want us to talk about on the show, podcast at MILB.com. We will do our best to accommodate that as well. And until next week... Um, Enjoy the 4 o'clock sunsets. We'll talk to you then.